Welcome to the Adapting Places podcast, where I would be investigating evolving perspectives on people and place with different guests every time. And for the first episode that we have recorded, I managed to get uh, Gunther Soydenbe uh, from Soydenbe Consulting to talk to me about the current crisis situation and how it requires place uh, branders and place managers to be aware of certain psychological concepts in order to deal with communicating uh, clearly in these times of crisis. My thanks goes out to the Place Brand Observer for facilitating this interview with Gunther. The Place Brand Observer is the leading online magazine and knowledge hub on place branding. And I invite you to find out more on placebrandobserver.com. That's placebrandobserver.com. Big thanks to Florian and the whole team at the Place Brand Observer. Now just sit back and enjoy the episode. published an article on dealing with, with the crisis so we're in a exactly. crisis situation yeah, uh, yeah so which of the things that normally applied you think might be uh, out of the window well uh it's a very good question um because this um certain elements of uh, crisis communication is already um embedded in my regular strategy work. Uh, when I work with a client to map out the messages, I uh, tend to use these rules, uh, not very strictly, but as guidelines to uh, narrow down the messages. Uh, why? Because um, the primary thing about crisis communication, the, the, the fundamental the concept that everybody should be aware of is mental noise. So when we are stressed, anxious, panicked, afraid, our cognitive ability to process information goes down by almost 80%. Okay, so basically uh, all the good things that make you a human being, like problem solving, thinking, planning, controlling your impulses, uh, abstract thinking, creativity, imagination, all those things that do separate us from uh, other animals, uh, they take backseat. But there are uh, some studies showing that the stress levels of a commuter people are higher than the stress levels of pilots of military jets that are engaging in dogfight. So what does that mean that uh, like everyday life is putting so much stress, so much anxiety on us that the brands should already be operating in a mental noise state? Uh, 
that being said, right now we are witnessing a gigantic crisis and this mental noise has amped up. Um, people cannot hear, cannot understand, cannot remember information. So that's what mental noise does to you. Uh, the second uh, concept uh, is risk perception. Uh, it's very interesting because at the end of the day, the real risk itself and the perceived risk are not the same. So I'll give you an example. If a certain risk is voluntary, even though it might be as deadly or even deadlier than the other risk, we will perceive it as less risky. Imagine uh, not using a seatbelt. Uh, it's something that you are in control. At least you have the uh, illusion of control because you're driving the car and you sit, tell to yourself, uh, I'm a very good driver. Uh, that's why I don't have to wear seatbelts. Then the risk, a real risk of bioterrorism might be much lower, but your perception of that risk might be much higher. So when the perception of the risk is higher, it creates a higher level of uh, fear, a higher level of outrage. Um, so right now, the crisis that we are facing is something that is involuntary, like nobody wanted to be part of this. It's not fair because we didn't start it. It didn't start here. It started elsewhere. Even elsewhere, those people did not start it voluntarily. Um, at the end of the day, nobody benefits from this risk. Okay? Uh, there are certain risks that you might benefit or somebody else might benefit. But with this risk, nobody benefits. It's literally not un under anybody's control. Like you know, right now, neither the World Health Organization nor the governments are in control of this. And finally, um, not all around the world, but when we look at the major countries, uh, people who are managing the crisis are not very trusted. Uh, so all those things create a huge outrage fear factor, uh, which makes this, uh, uh, the crisis uh, really, really, uh, a bad one to deal with. This situation is not going to last forever and people's like, you know, fear is eventually going to um, uh, dissipate. Um, and there is another like, you know, interesting thing about this crisis is that we tend to pay more attention at the beginning when there are less losses uh, as opposed to uh, when there are more losses. Mm -hmm. So the more losses uh, will take place, we will see that uh, we are going to maybe become a little bit immune to the bad news. Maybe we will get a little bit bored of the bad news. Maybe we will be looking for some positivity elsewhere. So pay 
consciously less attention to the bad news. But what's going to happen is that, as you'll see, over time, we will start paying less and less attention, even though loss might double in a couple of days. Hmm. Now, why do you think that is? That's a cognitive bias. Um, that's uh, that's uh, baked into our uh, uh, mind, I guess. Um, it's a it's a uh, it's a predictable pattern uh, when you have um, in the beginning of the problem uh, you, you the, the everything is novel right the the fear is novel the ambiguity is novel um, the, the risk is novel um, and people dying is novel uh, but over time uh, we just adopt like you know uh otherwise we cannot survive like you know uh you know the the, the the second world war lasted almost six years uh so at one point like you know people like the probably the first couple of years of the war were not as the last couple of years of the world in terms of the psychological impact that it was having on man on the street um so yeah yeah th this makes sense and it because it rings a lot of bells because that's kind of where my uh research interest is some somewhere around the kind of on the one side what you talked about is us having baked in biases but then uh, on the other side the, the fact that we can adapt things you know in in the, in the good or you know whatever way but we do adapt over time to things so i guess because you've put this as kind of the fourth concept that is important uh, in the psychology of crisis communication. So the mental noise, the difference between the actual risk and risk perception, the trustworthiness, and then you've put cognitive biases as the final ones. But I guess for me, what's what's really interesting is is to see that well, if we all, I've always I've thought this before this crisis. So if we all have these biases and they're predictable uh, is it helpful when when we when we acknowledge them because i've noticed what's what in my personal experience has been more useful is when you have so for example when you gave me the simple model uh for example the the ad car one now i have it here it's very easy for me to to learn that simple rule of how to deal with a certain problem but if i'm just aware of some sort of a bias that i have find it very difficult to actually do something about that bias is that making sense well exactly because at the end of the day those biases um and the heuristics and the logical fallacies uh they are taking place at, a, at an unconscious level so those are some of the rule of thumbs of your mind like that create some predictable patterns of thoughts and behaviors that lead to incorrect conclusions. Uh, there are certain mental shortcuts uh, to solve common problems. There are like, you know, all these things are there for your conscious mind to operate more uh, effectively. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why like, you know, even if you are aware of all these biases, it is extremely difficult to uh, to swim 
against the current. Um, and that's why I, I believe that you, you, you feel um, uh, a little bit like uh, maybe helpless uh, when you are, when you're in charge, uh, when, when you are uh, facing these uh, biases. Yeah, uh, but I guess uh, it's interesting that relationship between the, because you say the, the, the heuristics and simple rules, they might be unconscious, but I find if some, some of them are actually observed and then made more conscious, they, they make for decent working, working solutions that you can teach other people. So uh, just as the ones that you, through your long-term experience, have kind of given here and the ones that we're going to talk about later in, uh, in, the, in our talk. Uh, so do you think that it's a price worth paying for to have some form of biases? Because obviously uh, the discussions that tend to gravitate around simple rules uh, and biases are not necessarily in the same, they're not very scientific, are they? Yeah, well, I, I think there are prices to pay for, for sure, uh, because at the end of the day, um, again, uh, brain is a complex structure, um, and to my knowledge, like we don't even know what uh, consciousness is. Uh, hmm. but what we know is that it um, emerges out of complexity. Um, so, and as soon as you have such complex systems or dynamics, uh, you might need some patterns. And these biases, these heuristics, these logical fallacies, they are all uh, predictable patterns. Uh, and that's the price that we uh, pay for. Now, on the bright side is that as an individual, you don't have to be aware of these because these things are happening on your uh, unconscious mind. Uh, there, that being said, if you're dealing, uh, if you are in communication, uh, in charge of communication, uh, you have to know, you have to be aware of these biases so that you can at least address them or make them less effective. Uh, or you can use them to your advantage. For instance, one of the major uh, problems is the availability bias. Um, people often judge the likelihood of an event uh, by the ease with which examples and instances come easily to our mind. Mm -hmm. uh, that's why people overestimate the likelihood of getting attacked by a shark. Uh, if you put it in probabilistic um, uh, if, you, if, you, if you want to prove it by facts, it's not going to work. What you can do, you can create other ideas, other instances, other examples available so that people might pick them up instead of picking up sharks. Uh, if you are aware of the negativity bias, which means that as humans, we are hardwired to remember negative things, then you might consciously 
try to provide more positive news so that at least you balance out the negativity. Um, if uh, you are aware of the conformity, the herd bias or herding bias, uh, then you might try to herd people uh, towards the right type of behavior. Uh, things like that, like, you know, one thing after another is as the person who's in charge of communications, you have to be aware the existence of these biases so that at least you can, with your communications, nudge people towards a less uh, fearful, less outrageous uh, territory. This makes sense, um, especially around the discussions around nudging. It's become quite popular with governments that want to be kind of democratic, but at the same time still uh, provide some form of guidance. Uh, I can get this perspective. The only reason I'm, I tend to think twice about it is because I've seen it kind of from the other side where a lot of the, the this kind of literature around uh, biases and heuristics i will i will actually separate them so the biases and heuristics ones have found their home in in government and governance but on the other side heuristics as you know different different adaptive tools that can be used to solve you know the same problem in multiple ways have found their home in the digital world where i kind of am in my day-to-day -day job uh, where we see that you know the s different people might solve the same task differently and equally as valid to to build a system to map that um, in either way so i guess it's it's really interesting in dealing with crisis management if there is a you know a way to nudge people obviously we're going to talk about your uh, suggested rules uh, but then i'm thinking from the thinking about mainly the first person perspective so if i have a certain set of rules that i've been following and they work for me and someone from the outside needs to nudge me, how can they know that uh, they're doing the right thing? So I, I'm trying to take both the perspective of the person that is going to receive the message and that one and giving it. So if you can kind of just tell me about your view from how you'd see it from both ends. Yeah, I guess the, 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 the fundamental, fundamental thing about the idea of nudging is it doesn't work on everybody, right? Like you know, there is no nudge that makes any problem disappear. It just makes uh, marginal uh, improvements on, on, on certain things. Let's say that if, 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 if like, you know, late payments uh, is like, if you can reduce like late payments by 12% and if nudging can help you with that, uh, then by all means you use it, but it doesn't like, you know, make the problem disappear. Mm. Um, it, that itself uh, tells you that like, you know, there is no silver bullet. There's no one nudge that solves everything. There is no one cognitive bias, which you can identify can like, you know, solve the entire problem. Uh, in that sense, I guess it goes back to what we discussed earlier. You, you have to be able to look at the same problem from multiple different point of views. Mm -hmm. And um, maybe there are more than one cognitive biases or heuristics that are uh, in play. 
And for me, one of them might work, and for you, another one might work. four tactics that I'm going to mention are all uh, invented by uh, Dr. Cavello, who is an expert in this field. So these are his tactics, not mine. Um, but the first one is um, average grade level minus four. Uh, as we mentioned, there is quite a bit of mental noise. And when there is mental noise, uh, our cognitive ability to process, hear, understand information uh, reduces um, significantly. That's why when you are writing, when you are uh, giving messages, uh, you have to aim at the average grade level of your intended audience minus four. And the example that I had is uh, I took Turkey as an uh, example. The average educational attainment in Turkey is seventh grade. So in times of crisis, your messages should be so clear that a third grade kid could understand. Otherwise, the masses might have difficulty uh, hearing you, understanding you, and processing what you are saying. So average grade level minus four. If you're talking to, let's say, university students, obviously you have to address them as high school uh, educational attainment level. Um, so the second one is uh, rooted in negativity bias that we talked about. Um, we tend to focus more on negative messages than positive messages in general. And during times of crisis, probably that gets worse. Uh, we are more, um, uh, we are, we, we remember traumatic experiences better than the positive ones. Uh, we react more strongly to negative stimuli. Uh, we are more aware of the losses that we make than the gains that we make. That's why uh, anytime you give a negative message, you have to surround it with three positive or constructive or solution-oriented key messages. Otherwise, the negativity bias is going to take over and people will key in on the um, bad parts of your message. The third one is called the rule of three. It's actually uh, almost an ancient idea to have a rule of three. Um, but again, due to mental noise in high stress situations, uh, given that our uh, ca capability to 
process information decreases, uh, we have to keep everything tight. Uh, so we can process fewer messages. That's why having a message with a rule of three framework might help. So you can have one message with three breakdowns or three messages and that's it. Um, instead of having like, you know, bullet points, nine or 10 or 12 bullet points, uh, you have to organize them uh, in, in, in groups of three. And the final one is that uh, it's about the length of the message. The first one was the number of the message. The second one is about the length of the message. Again, due to mental noise, uh, we cannot uh, stay focused um, long time. And based on the recommendations of Dr. Covello, uh, the ideal is for a message to have no more than nine words and to be able to spoken in three seconds. So you have nine words per message, three messages. Uh, for each negative message, you have to give three positive messages. And the way you articulate your messages should be average grade level of your intended audience minus four. So these are the four tactics that could work during times of crisis. Okay, well, that, that, all of them make sense. And I, I, I really can follow how they, they follow from the concepts uh, that we discussed earlier. And I guess I haven't thought of um, necessarily another country's approach, but the, the UK one with stay home, stay home, protect the NHS, which is the National Health Service here and save lives. So stay home, protect the NHS, save lives. How would you evaluate that one? Does it? Yeah, well, it, well, there are more rules, obviously, uh, but I, I, I kind of like, you know, like them. Uh, first of all, uh, they're all action oriented, right? Uh, it's not like uh, staying at home or it's not like home is where people should be. It's like stay at home. The second one is that such messages do work, especially in individualistic countries where you speak directly to the person. Uh, stay home. Uh, that might not work as efficiently in a more collectivistic country, but in like, you know, uh, individualistic country like the UK, uh, it does work. And then you have three messages and all of them are None of them are negative, right? You know, stay at home, protect yeah. the national health system. And what was the third one? Save lives. Save lives. Yeah, you see, all of them are positive. Mm -hmm. So all of them are very short. Um, so, yeah, well done. Okay. And then obviously that's uh, at the national level, it's, it's very easy because they tend to get more of the media attention. But do you think the communication changes at all if it's uh, at any of the other spatial levels? Like if it's a city or if it's a municipality that has to deal with communicating in crisis? Yeah, I don't think that the framework changes as much uh, because at the end of the day, uh, all of these things are uh, rooted in the crisis itself, right? Uh, people, regardless of 
the crisis, people are going to experience mental noise. Uh, regardless of the crisis, people will always focus on the negative side. Um, that's why, like, your messages obviously will change from place to place, from organization to organization, from government to government. Uh, but these simple rules uh, might uh, be, I don't want to say universal, uh, but at least in the Western world, they might be uh, inherent the way we communicate. Hmm. I think that's a, that's a really good way to, to finish because I definitely have clarity on how the thing works. And if people want to get in touch with you, how can they do that if they need any more help with crisis communication? Well, um, um, they can go to my website, uh, soydanbay.com s-o-y-d-a-n-b-a-y.com uh, or they can uh, find me on twitter uh, my name is gunter soydanbay uh, or they can find me on linkedin uh, and uh, i'll be happy to answer anybody's questions thank you all for listening i hope you enjoyed the episode as much as i did having the conversation with gunter if you're interested in getting in touch with the Adapting Places podcast, you can do so on adaptinc.co.uk. That's adapt, I-N-C, instead of I-N-G, .co.uk.